We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. Okay, that's it for announcements. Uh, If you'll turn your Bible to Psalm 24, it's Ascension Sunday, and we're going to be looking at Psalm 24 together. Psalm 24. Psalm 24, a psalm of David. The earth and everything in it, the world and its inhabitants belong to the Lord. For he laid its foundation on the seas and established it on the rivers. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart who has not appealed to what is false, and who has not sworn deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who inquire of him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, you gates. Rise up, ancient doors. Then the king of glory will come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates. Rise up, ancient doors. Then the king of glory will come in. Who is he, this king of glory? The Lord of armies. He is the king of glory. Let us pray. Father, we praise, we meditate upon your word that you would speak to us again. Awaken our hearts to the truth that Jesus Christ has ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he calls us to ascend with him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What do you do after you become a Christian? What is the goal? Where are we going? To put this another another way, do you know where the Christian life is aiming? Where are we going? These are pretty simple questions, but often in our circles, it's easy to talk about the moment, the event that you're saved, and then your future in heaven. And we leave that middle part a little mushy. We don't know what's happening in that middle part. Our typical answer is, well, we're called to be sanctified. We're we're called to be conformed to the image of Christ. These are good and biblical answers, but what does that look like? How do you know that you're becoming sanctified? How do you know that you're growing more into the image of Christ? So you have that event and then the end, but what do you do do in the middle? What does that look like? Often we speak of spiritual disciplines. We read the Bible, we pray, we worship, we engage in community, we come to church. And, And while I'm for these things, again, how does that help us map our spiritual journey? How do we know that we're growing? Spiritual disciplines are what we do. Spiritual formation deals with where we are going. Spiritual disciplines are what we do. Spiritual formation deals with where we are going. The question is not whether we are being formed. 
It is, what are we being formed into? We're all being formed in different ways. But how are we being formed? I think it's helpful to provide more details, more steps, more specifics to map out our spiritual journey. And that's what I want to do for you this morning. Conversion is not the end of our journey. It's only the beginning. It's only the beginning. Today is Ascension Sunday where we celebrate, remember, Jesus rising into the air to sit at the right hand of the Father. And this morning I want to meditate with you on our own ascent to God. Our own ascent to God. One way to think of our spiritual journey is to view it as an ascent, a going up, a climbing the mountain of God. Psalm 24 is an ascension psalm. Verse 3 says, who may ascend the mountain of the Lord. So this morning, I want to map your ascent by speaking of three ways. Three ways. It's been described this way in the Christian tradition, and I've mapped these three in one simple graph. Kirk, will you put that graph up? So I'm not giving you a pyramid scheme, but I am hoping that this will help you remember. The three ways are this. Awakening, purgation, illumination, and union. And if you're thinking, that's four, you idiot. How bad at math are you? Well, I am terrible at math. My kids know that. They ask me to help with their math, and I'm like, go to your mom. I don't know what's going on anymore. You're too old. But the three ways we are focusing on this morning are the, are the ways that come after the pre-stage, which is actually awakening, which is conversion. And we're not going to be talking as much about that we're going to be talking about the three ways after conversion. So at, what do you do after you're saved? What, how do you map your spiritual journey? Now, this might be very, this language even might be very new to you in terms of you've never heard it put this way. And so some of you might be really excited about this because it's new to you, and some of you might be really nervous about it. So just know thyself, right? But let me give you five, yes, five disclaimers before I go through all three of these things. So these are short, but five disclaimers. First, I do want you to consider where you are on this journey. That is the goal. But I also want you to not be judgmental with either yourself or with others. The desire for all of us when we see a chart like this is to want to be at the top, to want to be at the top. But in the Christian life, these are all good stages. These are all good stages. So if you have just come alive, if you've been awakened, praise the Lord, you are one with Christ, and that can never be taken away from you. Or maybe you're in the stage of purgation. I'm going to talk about that in just a minute. Praise the Lord. Jesus is yours, and you are his. Or maybe you're in illumination. The angels in heaven rejoice. These are all good stages to be in. This is part of our ascent to God. Inside this chart is like planet fitness. It's a no judgment zone, okay? Second, while I want to speak in terms of ways or stages or steps, I want you to know it's never as neat or linear as that. <laughs> Life doesn't work like an algebra equation, right? So you can be at different stages in different areas of your life at different times in your life. Okay, so while I'm trying to give like a neat picture of what it is, it's, it's never as neat as this. But I hope these concepts will still be helpful for you. you. These categories can help us, but don't lock them into a mathematical box. At the same time, I think we see in the scriptures in our own experience that we do enter stages in our life 
that are more focused towards one of these or another. Third, these are not laid out in the scriptures in one passage specifically like this. I think we can see it in Psalm 24, which is why we're going to go through Psalm 24, but I'm not going to exegete just one passage. That might make some people nervous, but I want you to know this has been helpful for Christians for thousands of years. This has actually been a historic way of speaking about what it means to be formed into the image of Christ. I do think these are drawn from the scriptures, and I hope to show you this. And even though some in the Christian tradition have taken this in a more mystical, you can talk to me about this afterwards, mystical, monkish, or perfectionist way, that's not the way you have to take them. Fourth clarification. These steps are not moralism. These are not steps you take to work your way up the ladder to God. You need to have a gospel overlay over all of this. You, Christian, according to Ephesians 2, are already seated with Christ in the highest heavens. You, Christian, are saved by grace alone and by faith alone, not by purgation, illumination, and union. You are held by the hands that made the heavens, and he will never let you go. So this is not a pull-yourself-up-the-mountain message, but it is a work-out-your-own-salvation-with-fear-and-trembling message. It is a seek-the-things-that-are-above sermon, Colossians 3.1. It is a be-transformed-by-the-renewing-of-your-minds, Romans 12.2 message. It is a call to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, Matthew 5.48. While this is all of grace we are still called to ascend. Finally, in each of these stages, God will often take us into the dark night of the soul. None of these stages are cloudless summer days, even though illumination or union might sound all happy clappy. The reality is, the further you get up the mountain, the more the storm clouds might come in. Actually, the stronger the storm clouds will come in. And the more you might feel like, I'm not growing at all. You're simply going through the dark night of the soul. That's a sermon for another day. But in each stage, if you're not feeling that you're in that stage, that doesn't mean you're not in that stage. The Lord might be growing you in this particular time to actually have you ascend up high. Okay, now that I've given you clarifications, I want to move forward with thinking about the three ways following awakening. Stage one in our ascent up God's mountain has been called purgation. This is where we begin to follow Jesus. If awakening is the base camp of the mountain, then purgation is where we strap on our backpacks and we begin to climb. We begin our ascent. And what we immediately find is that as the author to Hebrews says, we are weighed down with this thing called sin. We are weighed down with this thing called sin. Those things that cling so closely to us. Our backpack is full of all the stuff that is dragging us down. And we can't make progress. Purgation comes from the word purge, which means to rid yourself or remove that which is unwanted. In purgation, we burn the sin that is out of us. In our Christian life, the first stage we walk through is to rid ourselves of our sin. Not completely, but we begin to put off the old self. 
We can see this in Psalm 24, verses 3 through 4. Look at what he says. He says, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord or the mountain of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? Who? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. To ascend God's mountain, we must purge ourselves of the sin by the power of the blood of Christ. Or think of Moses. I'm going to use Moses as an example all the way through this. Think of Moses when he comes to the burning bush. This might sound strange to you. But when he comes to the burning bush, what does he have to do? He's told to what? Take off his sandals for this is holy ground. Why in the world does he have to take off his sandals? I've always been confused by this image, but the sandals represent what is external to Moses, what he must peel off. I think it alludes actually to the garments of skin like those that were placed on Adam and Eve, and he must remove those so he can dwell in the presence of the Lord. Paul commands us in Ephesians to put off your old self. He says in Romans 8, 13, If by the Spirit we put to death the deeds of the body, we will live. Purgation is putting to death the deeds of the body. The scriptures testify that we are called to purge, to burn the sin out of us. Now, many have talked about the ways of purgation in in three ways. So here's three (laughs) subpoints to purgation. We have our three ways to ascend and then three subpoints to purgation. Level one is ridding ourselves of gross sin. Not you like gross, but sins that are obvious and major. We put off things like Galatians 5, 19 through 21, sexual morality, idolatry, hatred, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, envy, drunkenness, orgies. Gross sins are first to go. Next, we rid ourselves of conscious sins. This is different in that we deal with behaviors that may be normal and acceptable in our culture, but which the scriptures and the spirit of God tell us are not good. They are conscious sins because we still choose to do them. For example, we put off sins like materialism. Even in the church, oh, it's okay. You can spend a bunch of money on yourself. It's not bad. And then Jesus says, no, we're actually called to give away our wealth. So now we're we're not just putting off sins like sexual morality, but we're putting off sins like materialism. We're being more conformed to the image of Christ. Or another example, everyone else is watching this show. Why can't I? But it's essentially pornography. But it's on Netflix. It doesn't matter. But we know, man, we should not be watching that. Or we put off pride or selfishness. In our culture, these things are okay. They're not of Christ. Finally, in the way of purgation, we rid ourselves of unconscious sins. We let the Spirit of God reveal to us aspects of our inner being that may have been invisible to us, but are hindrances to us. This has not only to do with sins of commission, what we do, but sins of omission, what we don't do. Here, we begin to deal with motivations. Why am I doing what I'm doing? Sometimes we do the right thing, but we do it out of wrong motives. I heard one pastor give the uh, example of sin, or I give the example of anger as a sin. Level one gross sin would be violence. Maybe you get in fights at school, at a bar, or maybe even closer to home 
you engage in domestic violence, or you use your body to hurt or throw things at them. That would be level one, gross sin. Level two, conscious sins. Maybe, maybe you don't hit or hurt anymore, but you yell at people. They do something to upset you. You fly off the rail at them. You're not going to touch them, but you'll yell at them. Or you have road rage, where you roll down your window and you're, you're screaming at something. You call people names. You threaten them. Level three, unconscious sins. You would never hit. You would never roll down your window. Inside, you're seething with contempt. You wouldn't show it to anyone, but inside, you're so angry, and you're filled with bitterness, and you think you're better than other people. And this layer, this unconscious sense, takes a very long time to purge out of us. This is where so many people get stuck. In stage one, we begin to purge ourselves of these sins. Sometimes it's so easy to think of Christianity as this thing we do on Sundays. But the scriptures describe the Christian life as warfare. Charles talked about this a few weeks back. It's warfare. As John Owens has famously said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. It will drag you back down that mountain. Ascending to the top of the mountain is no easy task. There will be ravines, rocks, and restless nights. You have to get up early. You have to prepare. You have to be in shape. You need to bring water. You need to bring snacks. You have to have endurance. There is no royal road to heaven. You can't pamper your sins to heaven. And the scriptures tell us what this warfare will look like. We see it in Jesus' temptation. The warfare that we are engaged in is more subtle than a Marvel movie. We don't pull out our blasters and throw lightning bolts at the devil. That's not how it looks. The devil comes to us and simply twists the truth. And sometimes he just twists it subtly. Notice in Jesus' temptation, he'll quote the scriptures. He's not using it. Every day, you are presented with ideas that are opposed to God's truth. The primary battle with the devil is to believe truth or lies. The primary way that we fight is by thinking new thoughts, by changing the channel, by not watching that YouTube video, by not watching that TikTok video by protecting our minds, by being discerning about what we hear and thinking through that and comparing it with the scriptures and say, is this what God has revealed to me in his word? Is this true? Is this right? Is this good? And there is so much out there now with the internet. And they're clamoring for your attention. And a lot of it is lies. Lies. Many of you know we lived in Oregon for six years. And if you go to the coast, you see all these cottages on the coast. You call it the coast in Oregon, not the beach, so you know. But one of the things you notice with these cottages, there's some really nice ones. It's like, oh, that's a nice one. Love to stay there. Uh, and then there's ones that are like falling apart. And why is that the case? Because the climate is full of salt water. It's right on the coast, right? It's right by the ocean. 
and there's just salt water in the air. And homeowners must constantly be reciting, re-roofing, or fixing something up more than usual because it's just everywhere. Salt is everywhere. It's just eating away at your house. And if you don't do that very regularly, it will quickly fall into disrepair. In the same way, our Christian life is one of constant vigilance. You have to go outside and always look at the house and be like, all right, what needs to, no, what needs to be fixed here? Okay, there's wood rot there. My roof isn't looking good. Okay, we've, we've got to do something to begin to move forward. We live in a world where salt water is in the air. So much so that we can't even taste it. We go outside and we don't even know it's there. And we constantly have to be purging ourselves of that which clings so closely. So let me ask you, Christian, how are you doing on killing your sin, purging your sin? Is this a daily practice for you? Are you, by the Spirit's help, killing your pride, your anger, your bitterness, your lust, your jealousy? Are you identifying your sin? Are you having others help identify your own sin? Are you confessing it before others? Are you walking the light? Purgation is the first step of our spiritual life. The second stage in our ascent is called illumination. Illumination is a word that relates to light, seeing the light. In illumination, we see more of who God is. We begin to shine with his light. This is where we make progress in our ascent, where light fills us and we in turn become light to others. Our mind becomes more and more enlightened to spiritual things and we begin to practice the virtues. We become occupied with progress in the spiritual life. We move towards obedience. So here's some things that are characterize the stage of illumination. First, we begin to not only put off our old self, but to put on the new self. We put on the virtues, the fruit of the Spirit, such as love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Galatians 5, 22 through 23. We're not just removing the garments of flesh, but we're also putting on robes of virtue and righteousness. We're replacing those sins with good deeds and good thoughts. Second, prayer becomes the flow of our life as God is experienced in all things. We begin to engage in unceasing prayer, and we are attuned to God in all things. As God becomes a living reality to us, we also become more present in the world because we know that God has created all things for him. Third, rather than seeing God as out there to experience, God is out there, no, we know God as deeply present within our own being. We experience a profound transformation in our relationship with God. We give God absolute control of our lives, and we awaken to the reality of God in our inner being. Thomas Merton put it this way. We awake not only to God out there as king and ruler of the universe, which he is, but also a more intimate and wonderful perception of him as directly and personally present in our own being. We know that he loves us better than we love ourselves. And if we are opposed to him, we are actually opposing ourselves. You see this stage in Psalm 24, verses 5 and 6, where it speaks of seeking the face of the God of Jacob. 
He, the one who purges, verse 5, the one who purges himself from sin will receive blessing. What? Light from God's face, from the Lord, and righteousness, putting on the virtues from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who inquire of him. Don't you want to be a generation that seeks his face? I want us to be a generation who is known for seeking his face. That this generation will be known as the one who sought God with all their hearts. And if it's not our generation, I hope it's our kids, gen- our kids, that they're the generation that seeks the face of the God of Jacob. As you purge yourself, you receive these ble- this blessing of the Lord's light in your life. And we see this again in Moses' life. For Moses, he moves from the burning bush for- to where? Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, when Moses is about to ascend, God tells the people to make themselves holy, to wash their garments. Again, we get the image of purging themselves. Wash yourselves. Make yourself clean so you can ascend the mountain of God. And they are to cleanse themselves. And Moses cleanses himself. And then he goes up the mountain. And in Exodus says, the Lord came down on Mount Sinai. And Moses saw the God of Israel. He saw him. Beneath God's feet was something like pavement, but it was as clear as the sky itself, Exodus 24.10. This language might be confusing, but the picture one gets is that Moses is peering through the division between heaven and earth. He's on earth looking into heaven, and he sees where God resides. And as he does, what happens? His face lights up, and he comes down the mountain And they're like, what happened to you, Moses? Put a veil over that. We can't handle it anymore. He's been illumined. He's not only purged the sin from him, but he's seen the God of Jacob, and light is beginning to envelop his whole being. He has seen the light. Now he radiates light to others. That is illumination. The final stage And our ascent to God is union. Remember how at the beginning I asked, what's the goal of our spiritual journey? Where are we going? What are we aiming at? How do we know where to go if we don't know where we're aiming at? Union is the goal. Union is the goal. We are a creedal church. But the goal is not to know the Bible or more theology. We are a communal church. But the goal is not to have good relationships. We are a church on mission, but the goal is not to change the city. All of these serve the main goal, the main end of all of humanity, which is for humanity to have union with God. These are means to an end. We want to have union with God. This could also be known as terms such as spiritual marriage, transforming union, or contemplation. Some have described these three stages first as kissing Jesus' feet. You submit to him. Next, you kiss his hands. You do what he calls you to do. And finally, you kiss him on the head. You have complete union. Union, which very few people reach on this side of heaven, is characterized by oneness with God, where we find ourselves caught up in rapturous joy, adoration, and praise, and a deep peace that passes all understanding. We not only know, but experience that it is no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. And that becomes 
the heartbeat of our lives. Christ is actually living through us. There is union with us and God. In union, people have their minds chiefly fixed on God and their attention tuned either always or very frequently to him. And if you're like, that's impossible. It's not. (laughs) It's not. There are people who have lived the Christian life constantly meditating on who God is, as they even do other things. It is called the state of love because love so envelops our being for God and for all his creation. People who experience such union no longer experience the need for human reinforcement or approval. Rather, they have a gentle, quiet, but confident way about them. Throughout church history, this stage has been characterized by the prayer of quietness, a posture where you yield yourself to God's presence and his purpose. In essence, in this stage, we abide in God. We make God our home. As we return to Psalm 24, we see this in Psalm 24, verses 7 through 10. What does the psalmist say? David says, Lift up your heads, you gates. Rise up, ancient doors. Then the king of glory will come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord. Strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates. Rise up, ancient doors. Then the king of glory will come in. Who is he, this king of glory? The Lord of armies. He is the king of glory. That language is confusing. The psalmist David speaks of gates lifting up, ancient doors rising up. But the imagery is symbolic for us opening our hearts to have union with this king Enter inside of me so that you envelop my whole being. We open up our beings that the king of glory might come and abide within us. And who is this king? He is strong and mighty and he will bring you to himself. We read of this also where Jesus says in John, abide in me and I in you, John 15, 4, or abide in my love. Jesus prays that we might be in the Father, in the Son, and in the Spirit, that we might be made completely one as he is one. That is union. You are made one with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit as they are one. So we've traced Moses' ascent from the burning bush to Mount Sinai, but there's another important mountain that we see Moses. That's the mountain of transfiguration. On the mountain of transfiguration, the disciples not only see Jesus as full of light, but Moses and Elijah appear as full as light. Moses now truly sees Jesus and has achieved union with him. He is full of light. Ultimately, our full union won't occur until Jesus is revealed again. There is no doubt about our eternal safety. We will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. If you are in Christ, you will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. But you are called right now to ascend that mountain, to go towards him. The glory of the Lord will find you. John says, we know that when Jesus appears, we will be like him. Because we will see him as he is. We will be changed. Now, I wonder, maybe you've never heard this, putting it this way, but I wonder how this hits you. Some of us might be condemning ourselves. We're like, man, I am so far down your low pyramid scheme. I'm not making any progress at all. Let me say two things. Two things. First, 
The goal is not to reach the next stage, but to take the next step. Take the next step. As one pastor said, you simply need to ask yourself, what is Jesus doing in your life right now, and how can you, how can you say yes to him? What is Jesus doing in your life right now? How can you say yes to him? These stages are for our good and for our joy. So take the next step. Tighten that backpack. Get a drink of water. Take that next step. That's all he's asking. Second, this journey doesn't happen in an hour, in a day, in a week, in a year, in 10 years, and in a lifetime. This is a lifetime journey. You think it's simple, but the journey's not quick. It takes our entire life. It is stern work. The mountain is steep. It's hard. It's hard. I spent most of the time on purgation. Because based on the age of this congregation, that's where most of us find ourselves. That's often where people get stuck. But have you ever met a saint Followed the Lord decades. There's just something about them. There's just something about them you can't place your finger on. That person just exudes Jesus Christ. I think it's someone like that who's made some progress. Who made some progress up this mountain. The point again is to take one step at a time following Jesus. Let me close with a story. On Hannah and I's fifth wedding anniversary, 2009-2010, we traveled to Yosemite National Park in California. We got a pass to hike up, hike up Half Dome. Half Dome looks like a dome cut in half, and it's the logo for uh, North Face. It's a 15-mile round-trip hike up Half Dome with about a 5,000-foot climb in elevation. It takes about 10 to 12 hours to do it. You have to apply for a lottery ticket to go do it. We got it. We're, we're going. Just Hannah and I. I remember starting on the trail at dark with our headlamps on. You got to start early because if you want to make it up and back down in time, you got to start early. When we finally came to Half Dome, like the final ascent, the rock face seemed too steep. So I'm going to, we don't usually do this at a maze, but here we go. I'm going to show a picture here really, really quick. That is, uh, you can make fun of my bandana later. Um, <laughs> my, my 2009 Paisley bandana. Um, but this, this is the final ascent before you get up Half Dome. And if you look in the background, do you see those people at the bottom? You got to climb up that to get to the top. And there are cables. And there are pieces of wood that you got to put your feet on because it's too steep to get up otherwise. And when you're looking at it like that, I was like, I'm ter terrified of heights. And I was like, nope, we're done. Like, I got a great view right here. This is wonderful, right? And we were worn out. I mean, I was so tired. We had, we had hiked all day. And so we sat down, we had lunch. And then I thought about it more, and I realized, man, I will forever regret if we don't get up to the top. I'll forever regret it. So we summoned our courage, we strapped on our backpacks, and we made the final ascent. And the top was so much better. You could see the whole valley. I mean, behind it is really the Yosemite Valley. You can see the whole valley just snaking through and the trees coming. And you could see all the waterfalls coming down. My point in telling you this story is that when you look at mapping your own spiritual journey, you might feel just tired. <laughs> Another thing to do. 
The summit's too high. It's too much. I don't want to go up there. The path is too hard. But remember two things. Two things. You have people around you to help you. And you have one who has descended the mountain. You have one who has descended the mountain. At halftime, I left out two important details. When we had stopped to eat lunch, guess who passed us? A 70-year-old man. And he goes, you can do it. (laughs) And I was like, if that guy can do it, I can do it. I'm going up there. But that's what we need in our Christian life, right? We need people who have walked this path before us, who are coming alongside us and saying, get up. Get up to the top there. You can do it. You can keep walking. I've done it, and he just walked right past us. But second, there was someone who had gone before us, who had put those poles in, who had put those pieces of wood down so that we could ascend. Uh, We couldn't have done, like, you'd be slipping all over that rock face. I mean, it is, it is steep and it is smooth. You would not be able to make it up. You have people here, these people in this room, who are rooting for you, who are saying, keep going, keep, going. keep climbing. I know it's hard, but the top is And more than that, you have Jesus Christ who has gone before you. This psalm, Psalm 24, read it again, even just look at it. It's primarily about Jesus Christ. He, by his own merits, has ascended the mountain of God. He's the only one to have clean hands and a pure heart. It's he who came and the angel said, lift up those gates. Be lifted up because the king of glory is coming in. We can't stop him from coming in here. Who will ascend the mountain of the Lord? We will because Jesus has come down from the heavens to bring us to God. Get up, Christian. Christ waits for you. He has stepped out of the grave and he will shoulder you to heaven. He will put you on his back if you need to. And he will climb up and bring you to God himself. The summit is high, but higher still is his grace and love for you. He will bear you on eagle's wings. He has come down Jacob's ladder, and he has blazed the trail for you. He will carry you up. Scriptures say, you have a forerunner. Someone who's gone before you, a leader who has ascended that mountain and carved the path for you. Let me close by just reading Hebrews 12, 1 through 2. It just summarizes everything I just said. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, since so many people have gone before us and are going on this journey with us, let us lay aside every weight, every sin that clings so closely. You must purge yourselves of sin and let us run that race with endurance that is set before us. Looking to who? Looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is now what? Seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Christian, you have others to help you. Christian, you have the one who has gone before you. We must, as C.S. Lewis said, go further up and further and further. Keep climbing. Let's pray. Oh God, we recognize all is of grace and all is by the work of your spirit. We want to be, and we know we are, if we are in Christ, unified to you. 
but we want full union. We want to see your face. So, God, Father, give us encouragement. Give us grace. Give us endurance. Help us to fight the fight of faith. Help us to ascend the mountain of God only with your help. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we come now to our time of communion. And I don't know if you noticed, even this word, communion, has to do with the concept of union. The etymology is actually common union. <laughs> you, you, this, is, this meal represents the union that you already have with Jesus Christ. He is yours, and you are his. But we also remember, as we take of this meal, that Jesus said he wouldn't drink of the fruit of the vine again until that day when he drinks it with us in his Father's kingdom. As we take of this, we remember that Christ is for us, and we long to be with him. We long to eat with him and to see his face and to shine as he shines. And that is why this meal is for those who have begun their ascent to God, who have said, yes, I want to climb that mountain. It's going to be hard work, but I know the top is worth it. This, this, is, this is food for our journey. That's how you should view it. This is nourishment for us. We come, we think church is so important because we come each week because we need this food. We need it. Because if we don't, you know what's going to start happening? We start backsliding down that mountain. That's why we take of this. So if you haven't begun this journey up the mountain, we ask you to stay seated. But also recognize that he calls everyone to ascend. To ascend with Jesus Christ. At Emmaus, we come down the aisle to your right, beginning with the front row. Receive Christ's body and his blood. Come and eat. Remember that your Savior calls you to ascend with him. Come and eat. Thank you for listening to audio from Amaze KC, located in Kansas City. For more information about Amaze KC, please visit us online at www.amazekc.com.